the politics of sound with Ian Carnegie. Welcome back. It's February and my guest is Labour's Work and Pension Secretary, that's Jonathan Reynolds. Now he's a proud northerner who has taken his own individual view on a number of key policy areas. But Jonathan's passions also extend to film, gardening, football and of course music. We'll be discussing all of these and much more on this month's Politics of Sound. Jonathan, a very warm welcome to the Politics of Sound for February. How are you and where are you? I'm really well, thanks Ian. I'm really glad to be doing this. At the minute, I am sat in Portcullis House. We have the vote today on the government's new tiers that we're going to go into as we move out of the national lockdown. So it's a busy day here as ever, but um, I really enjoyed thinking about the choices for this and, and being able to talk to you about them. Well, talking about that and indeed, of course, your recent very exciting appearance on the Strictly It Takes Two, indeed with the whole family. How did that come about? Yes, uh, to be honest, of all the things I'll ever do as an MP, I think probably get the most publicity for uh, a brief appearance on the Strictly Support Show. Um, the whole family loves Strictly. Uh, children, uh, me and uh, my wife Claire, and my mum and dad. And also, you know, because you, I haven't been able to see my, my parents, the, the grandparents, for, you know, most of the year. It's a bit of an interactive experience on a Saturday night. And, of course, our, our great friend uh, Jackie Smith was one of the uh, contestants this year. So she was indeed. The, uh, the children all made the entire family little score paddles. So when Jackie appeared on the first week, we did a little photo on, on Twitter of us all holding up the tens. Um, and um, the BBC got in touch and asked if they could use the image for, for Jackie's uh, appearance on It Takes Two. So it was really nice. I thought she did absolutely great. A really tough um, year, to be honest, because everyone was so good in those initial weeks. I think, you know, she might have been able to stay on a little bit longer if it wasn't just for the, the really high standard everyone on hit. But it, it was great to support her and it was really nice to appear on that show. But can you see yourself following in Jackie's footsteps if the call came? I, I've got to be honest, I, I, once, I took my mum once to the filming of it because the whole family love it so much. And I, I was so impressed by, it was when Ed Balls was on um, and Ed Balls did fantastic on it. And um, uh, there's a guy, Judge Rinder, who people might know, I was actually at, at university um, with Rob Rinder and, and he was doing it as well. And he, he, was, he was brilliant. And I... I, mean, I can't say dancing has ever been a natural strength of mine, and I, I fear it would be very embarrassing. But I can I can see the kind of, you know, the health and fitness side of it. Um, I mean, I think Ed Balls, you know, did dramatic things uh, for him. So, I, I, you know, you never say never to anything, but I, I don't think they'd quite have me on just yet, and I, I would be a little bit worried about being embarrassing at it. Now, you're the MP for Staley Bridge and Hyde. It's an area you've known all of your life, and it's an area rich in musical history and heritage, and particularly known for the creation of a very famous song in the Newmarket pub. Well, this is a long way to Tipperary. It is indeed. And the Jack Judge, yes. So, we, we well, all of Greater Manchester has a great musical tradition, but we do, um, we do take credit for, for Jack Judge, and it's a long way 
to Tipperary. Um, there's a statue of Jack Judge up outside Staley Bridge Civic Hall. So it, it is very well known locally. One of the London MPs once said to me, you know, if you look at the lyrics, it does seem a little bit like it. You know, it's quite a London theme there. But I was like, look, we, we've got it. We're taking it. Um, it's, it's part and it was written in one night or something. Yeah, it was, yeah. was it some sort of... It, it's, it's a story like that. It's, it's amazing how... I mean, I suppose is what we're talking about through the whole podcast, how, you know, certain bits of music become just so important so synonymous with certain things and that's absolutely true of that um yeah and we're very proud of that tradition i mean there's a great still you know great live music tradition um in towns like staley bridge and hyde um a lot of original uh, acts as well and it, it's great to sort of you know reflect on that we're, we're really proud of that i don't know whether you've seen there's a there's a new um, thing on on the internet where you can type in a phrase into hansard and it tells you the first time it was ever used in British parliamentary history. And I was trying to find something that I could claim as being the first person. And actually, the only thing I can find so far is it was in a debate on culture about seven years ago, which I think was sort of reflecting much more traditional senses of culture. But uh, Joy Division and New Order were the first, uh, for, used for the first time in parliamentary Hansard, where I referenced some of Manchester's musical tradition. So that there is a little bit of something in that. It's nice to keep that going. I want to talk about your love of Sunderland Football Club. This is a very proud club going back many, many years. Have you ever been to the Tynan Weir Derby? Oh, wow. So I've never, I've never been to St James's Park um, for the away leg, but I, I've been to, obviously, the Stadium of Light um, and Roker Park before that for um, games against both Newcastle and Middlesbrough. Newcastle's a bit more, bit more of a bigger deal, but there's still a lot of angst in the Middlesbrough fixture as well. I remember one particular... I was in the Stadium of Light, but the game was at St James's Park because we had a beanbag, so you know, basically we had big television screens up, and one side of the stadium was full. And it was when um, Kevin Phillips scored the winner, and Rude Hullet must have been manager because he dropped Alan Shearer and Duncan Ferguson, who were big he names dropped them. He dropped both of them for the, for the Derby <laughs> game. He, he was sacked quite soon after that, uh, needless to say. But it was it was just wild. I mean, when we scored, well, Kevin Phillips scored the second goal for us, which was the winner. I, I don't know, there's not many times where you're in a situation where you're just sort of dancing up and down with happiness, you're hugging strangers. Not a common thing in, in, in Britain, um, <laughs> to say the least. And it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I, you know, some of my musical choices reflect this. I, I, I'm, I'm really, having lived my entire adult life in Greater Manchester, I, I love Manchester. Um, you know, I think Manchester's literally one of the greatest cities in the world. But I'm also really proud to be from Sunderland. It's not a fashionable part of the country. I don't think anyone would ever describe it like that. But I do think places like Sunderland, like Thameside, which I represent in Greater Manchester, they are an integral part of this country. You've got to understand areas like that to understand politics right now and in historical sense. And I love the way, obviously, all my constituents either support Man City or Man United for quite good reasons. And they're so sympathetic about supporting Sunderland. I mean, it's just they just know how awful uh, that usually is. I mean, you know, people talk about glory supporters and stuff. I, I can't imagine what it's like to, to support a team with any moderate level of success. We had the Peter Reid era where we finished seventh in the Premier League twice, and that was so magnificent. You know, it's been essentially a continuous diet of disappointment at other times. But I think 
you know, we see this a lot in the, in the debate about how we have to keep football teams going in this pandemic. Football teams are more than the football and the results. I mean, they're about, they are about the culture and identity of areas, especially the working class areas of the UK. And, and it, it, you've got this kind of shared affinity with people, you know, either because they also support Sunderland or because they support not a good football team and you can recognise that my, my best friend supports Coventry um, <laughs> they've had a similar similar kind of experience you know big club supporters deserve a lot more but I, I think football is so important for this country I really do Good times will, of course, return to football, with crowds being allowed to cheer on their teams in the way that they always did. But how do you see the future for Sunderland? Will they return to the Premiership, do you think? I mean, I've got such a misplaced sense of optimism about everything to do with Sunderland. Some people in the family joke to me, you know, that if you have two passions of the Labour Party and Sunderland Football Club, that's not an easy... <laughs> An easy mixture to take, but we do. We have well. We have a new owner coming in. I think maybe this week, and we we're going to have to have a new manager now uh, because we sacked uh, Phil Parkinson just a few days ago at the weekend. So, if you've got a new manager, a new owner coming in, a new chairman, th- there are some grounds for optimism. I mean, I have to say, as much as I, the novelty of League One, the third tier, ha- has worn off. I've been able to go to some great games. I mean, obviously we have Rochdale's up the road from Staley Bridge, so that's been a, a really nice away fixture when, when it was possible to go to football matches. Um, you know, a lovely club, clearly right in the heart of the community. It's an absolute tragedy what happened to Bury. I mean, we should not be in a situation where, you know, clubs so synonymous with, with you're really, uh, Bury's an important town, a proud, it's a big town. People don't know the Northwest very well. It's, you know, Bury's a serious place. It should have its own football team and you shouldn't be able to, to do what happened to Bury. And a similar story with Wigan, which is an absolutely uh, appalling story too. There's got to be a lot more done to protect teams. I mean, you know, for us, I look at the fan base, you know, people might be aware, you usually can basically tell where a football club will finish over time by how big their wage bill is. Basically, their revenue equates to their wage bill, that's broadly where they will finish up in the league. One of the exceptions to that rule is Sunderland. I mean, when, 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 we, when we got relegated from the Premier League, I think we had something like the seventh highest wage bill in the, in, in the top flight, which is absolutely appalling. I mean, it means the club's not been run very well. So it's not just about money. You do need things to be run well. But I do have a sense that if we get the right manager in and some ambitious ownership, you know, we could be... I want us to be a team that, that brings forward young players, especially from the northeast and northwest. You know, there's, there's still not enough people, I think, coming through the top flight clubs. And there's, there's a window for a club with a big big stadium and a big crowd to be able to offer those players something so you know I, I think there is a there is a way forward but you know it's been a lot of disappointment more often than not Now I know you're inspired to join the Labour Party at least partly by one of your tutors at the City of Sunderland College but do you think that your environment, your surroundings, your parents all played a very important part in nurturing that political awakening? Yeah I I think so. I mean I think if you're growing up in a part of the country like the northeast of England in the 1980s you know shipyard closures that the miners strike it's clearly a a time in the country's history where you have this really big shift in how the economy works and, and and where the jobs are and i mean certainly for me 
I thought unemployment was the was the worst thing, you know, the biggest political issue. Um, I feel like that still today. I think, you know, when we're looking at the, the predictions for next year where unemployment might go to, I think a lot of people aren't frankly aware of just what that means you know the, the personal experience of that has gone for a lot of people and but do you it, it think is, that it will hit your area harder than it's going to hit the southeast for instance i'm afraid it will just because of where people work i mean the jobs in hospitality in particular which is usually where you know it employs people quickest when you're bouncing back from it from a downturn that isn't available um i'm obviously worried about you know, we don't yet know at this stage what the nature of a Brexit deal might mean or if there'll be a deal at all. You know, about double the number, double the national average of people working in manufacturing in my area. So if that's if that's a problem for tariff-free uh, access to the single market for the rest of the EU, that's going to be a massive issue as well. So, yeah, my, my parents were not, you know, they were not kind of political in the in the in the activism sense. You know, they didn't push it at all. Um, but but culturally, we, you know, we are a Labour family. My, my dad was a fireman. Um, you know, <laughs> I've got to be honest. You know, joining the Conservative Party or, or you know, it, there was never any sense of that. I mean, politics was about getting involved in the Labour Party or not. But yeah, one of my tutors at, at City of Sunderland College, who I'm still in touch with, a guy called Andrew Patience. You know, he was really the person who. Not so much encouraged it, but just, you know, makes you aware there's something you can go into. You know, I mean, I'm still touched. I go to all my schools, obviously, and people aren't necessarily aware that that's how you do it. You just get involved as a volunteer. You might choose to get more involved, work in it at some point in your life. But I guess I didn't really know any of that was available, and he was a big cause of that. I think if you're a, if you're a person, a teacher, a lecturer, you know, the, the impact you can have on young people, that, that must be an amazing thing. I, I have so much time and respect for anyone who works in education because of the, the lifelong impact they can make on people. And I'm really grateful for Andrew for all of that. So I think none of that would have happened without that, that experience of just someone introducing you to it. And then, of course, you went on to university and your life after university seems to me anyway to be something of a whirlwind. You worked as a parliamentary assistant, you were elected to the NEC representing young people, you became a father, you trained as a solicitor. How did you balance everything? Well, there were times, you know, when that, when that was quite a difficult thing to do. I mean, I have to say, none of this was a, was a design. Um, it was, in many cases, adjusting to the circumstances. I mean, like you say, I, I had, a, had my first uh, child you know, not, not in an expected way, um, when I was really still quite young. Um, Jack's about to turn 18 in January, um, which feels amazing. But, you know, really, the, the jobs I was able to take, I always wanted to become a lawyer. And I done really well at university, uh, you know, got a first class degree. But then becoming a father, and then, um, you know, me and, and Jack's mum separated when he was still only one, the, definitely the right thing for both of us. But everything I had to do at that point was, was to fit in with that, you know, change of circumstances. So I, I didn't actually go to law school till I was a mature student. I, I did that, uh, I would have been, I think, 26 at the time. Um, need to save up the money to, <laughs> to do that um, at that point. So it, it was difficult, uh, you know, it, to fit all that in together. Um, but it, it's strange, I mean, all of those, you know, decisions, you know, because I always wanted to become a councillor. I wasn't really expecting to become an MP, but I ended up in the right place, I suppose, at the right time. You always need a bit of luck in politics to do that. So I count myself incredibly fortunate to to be able to do that. And of course, to be in an area where you become the MP for your area, where, where you're living. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with people who go and find a candidacy, you know, 
defeat an incumbent or they or they fill in for someone who is retiring and learn a new place but when you get to be in your own local party select you as their candidate it's your friends it's your neighbors you don't have to learn a new place or, or a new set of political relationships i mean you are really really lucky if you're in that position and of course i, I had that but you knew all the challenges because you'd yeah. lived those challenges yeah absolutely and also um it can be a double-edged sword because there'll be people. I was a local councillor there, so you know, if, if you've fallen out with people, you're, t- you're taking that uh, uh, into into the new relationship as well. But I love my local party. That there are people who, you know, were there and selected me as their local councillor when I was, you know, a 26-year-old, who, who are now still there with me when I'm a member of the Shadow Cabinet and the National Executive again. Now I'm 40, you know, and it, that's really special. I mean, there are some really special people, you know. And I and I can I know what's going to happen in, in national politics in the Labour Party because I know people in my area so well. I know when, for instance, some of those people were going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. I thought, well, look, he's going to become the leader because I can see where where opinions going in my own constituency party. I, I knew Kia was going to be very popular for similar reasons. You could see different people with different backgrounds uh, supporting him for those reasons. So it, it is a really special thing. You feel it a bit more as well. I mean, it, you know, you always know that. People's default when they think of politicians will, will not be favourable. You know, <laughs> most people will, will think they're, you know, if people get to know their own MP, they tend to like them. But you always know there's going to be some, some pessimism going into that. And so if people but ever... Why is to, that pessimism actually there? Why do people see politicians in such a negative way? I, I mean, I, mean I, I was the generation that came in after the expenses crisis and that, that, that you know, that burnt a lot of uh, political capital with, with the country. I mean, I think we have a very centralised political system. Uh, you know, people, we only have councillors and MPs. We, we don't have the kind of regional government that you would find or, or even the kind of strong municipal government you get in France or Germany. So people tend to expect their MP to be responsible for everything. A normal day for me, for instance, last week was, you know, I'm looking at the spending review, billions of pounds being committed to, to re-employment programmes, to... Um, you know, the public sector borrowing requirement absolutely ballooning this big cut in international aid and, and in the and public sector pay. And at the same time, the next minute, I'm responding to a story in the Manchester Evening News that a part of the constituency has been overgrown, over, <laughs> overpowered by giant rats that need that need dealing with. And you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to understand both elements of that. But it means that people they kind of expect you to be able to respond to everything and you can't. Um, I think people forget that most MPs are representing 80 or 90,000 people, you know, and, and you pride yourself on how you get back to people and all that. But ultimately, the big part of your job is when Parliament's sitting for four days of the week, you've got to be down here. You're the only person who can vote in that way. And I think, you know, there's a remoteness sometimes to Parliament. It, it, you're always kind of trying to find compromise in a way forward and people live very individualistic lives now I mean they can find the media they want they can um, find like-minded people to you know people aren't reading newspapers in the same way they're getting stories online and, and through Facebook groups and you really see that in a crisis like this I mean you see people responding to conspiracy theories and things like that in a way which I never really thought were that widespread so there is that pessimism there and the solution is always to meet your MP and to learn a little bit about them and you know, so, but if you're local and people say, oh, you know, I don't think my MP cares about the area, that obviously kind of hurts you more when you are someone who's come from that area and you still live there and your main home is there. So it, it has a bit of that, but it's still a very fortunate position to be in. 
coming back to Jeremy Corbyn and Sakir Starmer, I sense, given you've been described as on the moderate wing of the Labour Party, probably described yourself as that, that you're possibly more optimistic and comfortable with the new leader than you might have been with his predecessor. Is that so? Yes. I mean, I'm a, a very big supporter of Keir's. I think he's done a, an amazing job in the year since the general election in some really difficult circumstances. Not easy for an opposition leader to introduce themselves when you can't actually visit anyone or give a speech in front of people. Um, look, I, until I voted for Keir, I, I don't think I'd voted for the winner of a Labour leadership contest Certainly not as an MP. I think, obviously, the time Gordon Brown beat John McDonnell, I would have voted for Gordon Brown. But, you know, when Jeremy won, I, I could see that he inspired a lot of people. I didn't... I had my doubts about, you know, whether that was going to be successful, because I, I know how my own constituency would responded to Jeremy, and it, it was a challenge at times, and there's no doubt about that. But I Were there see, strong opinions on both sides, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there was... I suppose it was a polarising thing. There were some people who really, really loved Jeremy, but, you know most of my Saturday mornings knocking on people's doors, there was a lot of doubt about him. You know, it, I suppose my seat is, is, it's quite similar to what people call the Red Wall. I'm not massively keen on that label, but you know, it's that, it's that traditional Labour area, working class seat with, with some significant middle class parts to the area as well. But, you know, they were, it, there was never an easy time to it. I mean, the 2017 election was amazing for the change in opinion from the beginning to the end, but those opinion polls weren't wrong. I mean, the first few weekends of the 2017 election were absolutely dire uh, in terms of the canvassing response. And 2019 was just dire you know, full stop, it didn't get any better and it seemed to be getting worse with every day. So that was harder. Um, you know, for me, for Kia, he is both the the best qualified person to be Prime Minister, but he's also a good man. That fundamental decency and integrity comes across. I think he's also, you know, he's a working class lad, done good. And obviously I, I relate to that very much. I think that's a kind of, some people obviously try and attack the fact he's been knighted for, for public service by calling him Sakia. You know, He's a working class lad who's really done well, and I think in terms of his qualifications, his personal integrity, and where he will take the Labour Party, there's a lot There's a lot to be optimistic about. Not just that we can win again, which obviously is important, but for the kind of government he could lead. So, yeah, I, I'm really, you know, whilst it's not easy, and the challenge for Labour is enormous, if you look at just how far behind we are after the 2019 election. I think he is the best placed person to take it forward. And I am optimistic about the future because of that. And I'm also fascinated with your support for proportional representation. That's not really a traditional position to take for someone in the Labour Party, is it? Well, it's a growing view. I think you, you, I know what you mean, though. It's, it's not always something I mean, when you've got a two party system and the electoral system essentially guarantees that as a two-party system. If you're one of those two parties, you're kind of part of a, part of a cartel benefiting from that, <laughs> to, be, to be frank about Indeed. it. Uh, it comes for me from, I suppose it's growing up in the northeast in the 1980s. I, I don't think you should ever have a situation where electorally some parts of the country count for more than others. I think you should have an electoral system that, that forces parties to work together to find solutions. You know, I've always been a Labour supporter. I've never, never thought about leaving. I've never thought about joining anybody else. But I think we should win by, you know, getting the support of people all around the country. And I, and I, I just don't like the idea that certain constituencies count more, the marginals. And obviously, the map changes, and you see that in 2019. So it's not a static situation. But, you know, there are regions of this country, we might think of them as, say, very conservative, like the southwest of England. It's not uncommon that most people vote against the Conservative Party in the southwest of England in the election, but they will then get 90% of the seats. And I just look at what goes on in Scotland and Wales with the devolved parliaments, countries like Germany. 
their electoral systems are better. And I do think, especially around the issues around Scotland and the future of the Union, we would be better off adopting some of the best practice that exists elsewhere. Obviously, having a constituency link. I mean, I, I, I'm so connected to Staley, Bridge and Hyde and Mosley and, and Duckenfield and Longdendale. I, I want to be the MP for that area. But you can have that and you can have a representative election. If people vote for one party to be in, in power, that's what you get. You see that in Scotland. If they don't, you have to work together or have a minority government. The, the, the fact in the UK you can get more votes and lose an election is preposterous. I think it's preposterous in America as well, though there's different reasons behind their system. But it would just be a, a better way to do it. So I, I never, you know, pull away from that position. I, I've always held it and I, I'm going to continue to have it. And I do think, you know, opinion is moving towards that system because of what we see in other parts of the UK. Now, in addition to your busy parliamentary life, you are also a family man, you're married to Claire, you have four children and two dogs. Doesn't really sound like a recipe for being able to listen to very much music. Is that so? Well, there's a, there are times for that. I mean, I, first of all, I can't really play anything. I, I, wish, I wish I could. Um, I really encourage my children to do it because I, I do love music, do love the release of music. And, you know, as we'll, as we'll talk about with some of these choices, I love the way that certain bits of music, you, you remember them from certain times of your life, you know, the storytelling, and you can, you can relive those moments by connecting to it. And to be honest, the time we get the most for music is we obviously travel a lot by car between uh, Staley Bridge which is our family home and London and I find now you know the, the age the kids are at you can introduce them to music that you like and they're sort of the DJ in the car and we, we go around the family you can never get a full album to yourself you've got it's individual choices um, yeah but, that, but you're that, in charge of the music because you're in the front yeah yeah basically well because of Bluetooth you see they can, they can be on the mobile phones and do it you know one of the things I think it's these little differences that people don't realise. You know, even for people my age, the, the memory of buying an album, you know, and getting an album, being introduced to it, is still a is still a big thing. Obviously, now you know my children, they they don't they won't buy albums because we have streaming services and things like that. What they ask is if they like a song, they'll say, "Can you add this to my playlist?" So they've got their own personalised playlists on it. But you, all of a sudden, you take a step back and think they're no longer going to own music. That's not, that's, you know, they're not going to have a memory of, of buying music. They're going to have a memory of, of hearing something for the first time and, and putting it on their playlist. But what a totally different relationship to it. It's a bit strange, isn't it? But yeah, that's when we get to do it. Uh, Travelling is obviously part of being an MP to and from Parliament in your home. Um, so it's a nice time to do that. That's, how, that's when I like it the most. And in fact, this is where those playlists can be very, very important because you have all of those things on your phone and you can easily listen to them in the car. At least that's what I think anyway. However... You are now going to get the wonderful experience of going into a record shop, the legendary Politics of Sound record shop. You're going to get to pick three of your all-time favourite albums, and then we're going to discuss them. Are you ready to go into the shop? I am. So, Jonathan, how was your visit to the Politics of Sound record shop? It was fantastic. It's been a, it's been a wonderful chance to to think about this and to think of certain memories and bits of music that mean a lot to me um it's a re- actually a really nice opportunity to do it thank you no i think you've chosen some fairly eclectic albums but what's your first choice so my first choice is bell and sebastian 
if you're feeling sinister. Yes, their 1996 release on the Jeepster label. Yeah, 1996. I actually discovered it a little bit after that. But I think, you know, if you can call an album a masterpiece, I think this is pretty close to it. I really do. Well, it has been called that by many reviewers and musicians. I think the band feel it's their best album. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's so good. I kind of wonder when artists produce something like this, the pressure to record after that must be so hard when you've hit the standard as high as this. But I think, I mean, first of all, it's just beautiful to listen to. And every single song, you want the next one because of the way it's put together. But it's also the storytelling behind this, you know, and going back to that point where how music relates to, to, to memories in your life. I mean, there are certain tracks on this album, particularly Fox in the Snow, which is a, a song about being lost and finding something which I, I really think of my wife, Claire. Um, she feels the same about this music as well, because, you know, it's that, that's a feeling of fairly unhappy times and then you find someone in your life. And that, that's what that really means to me. Fox in the Snow. Where do you go to find something you could eat? Cause the word out on the street is you are starving Don't let yourself go hungry now Don't let yourself grow cold Fox in the snow But also, you know, I think it, it's it, it's such a masterpiece. It's timeless because I, I listened to it again fairly recently. Obviously, thinking about this podcast and you know, a song like "Me and the Major," we talk a lot about the culture wars. You know, it, it's really a story about that. You know, about different generations, too much biography between us. You know, so I'm listening to it again, and I'm still you know connecting it to contemporary things, and I think that is incredibly special. And of course, the band took their name from a '60s children's program, Bell and Sebastian, about a young boy and a dog. Uh, I think the dog was some sort of Labrador. I couldn't really tell he was in black and white, but it's pretty quirky stuff, isn't it? It is. And um, I, I don't know how widely known uh, Bell and Sebastian are by younger listeners, but, um, you know, when I was talking to people about these choices and, and, you know, referencing things I might pick out, I definitely, this was my first pick. I knew it was going to be this one. And the amount of people who, who just say, oh, I love that album. You know, absolutely love the album yeah and in fact many people see it as a masterpiece and it's very reminiscent of a bygone age and you've got these echoes of sort of early pink floyd sid barrett nick drake donovan and yet for all of those accolades they managed to record it in something like five days an extraordinary feat really it's amazing because i think even on your most favorite albums you you have you know your favorite songs your favorite tracks on that you think some of them are a little bit of filler you don't really get many albums where just every track feels like solid gold. Um, and and you just, it's just a pleasure to listen to it. If people, if they haven't been introduced to it, I think if they, if they hear one track, they'll want the whole thing. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, the meaning of the lyrics, the story that's being told there, it, 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 people will relate to this. and They'll love the music, but they'll be able to think of how it applies to them, and I, I, yeah, there, are, there aren't many albums that can do this, and that's why, why, that's why it's so special.
I also love that story regarding the genesis of their first album. They'd enrolled on this course at Stoke College uh, and they were allowed to record a demo. But there were just so many good songs that the college said, look, you can record more. And I think within three days they'd recorded the whole album, which became Tiger Milk. That's also a very well thought of album. Is it one of your favourites? Yes. I mean, If You're Feeling Sinister is my favourite. Um, all, all of their work is, is fantastic. I, you know, that story, which I'm familiar with, about the, the, the length of time it took to record it. I just, to have so much, you know, ready to go, just like that, just to record it in, in three or four days. I mean, the, you know, I often think, going back to those points around like the economy and things like that, it, it, that, that just doesn't bring home the, the creative power of people. You know, that, that, that we, just, we just don't know what people have inside of them, the impact they can have on other people, the, the benefit of that. You know, what a tragedy if they'd never had a chance to do that and, and never get this to an audience. And yet it was just there. It didn't need that much refinement. It didn't need that much production. It, it, you know, they had those stories inside of them. I, it's kind of awe-inspiring, really, um, as, to, as to how something so good could be put together so quickly. Well, they're still going, and they won the Outstanding Contribution to Music Award from the NME quite recently, and they played Glastonbury, I think, in 2015. Have you ever seen them live? No, I haven't, actually. I, to be honest, I never... I haven't actually. I don't get that much of a chance to go to live music, um, except when it's in uh, Staley Bridge locally, um, which is part and parcel of, of becoming a, a dad fairly young. I haven't been to Glastonbury since I think the Chemical Brothers headlined it, which is quite a, quite a long time ago. It's probably just after university, so we're talking decades, I'm afraid, quite embarrassingly. But no, I haven't had a chance. Another to thing you did straight after university when your feet didn't touch <laughs> yeah, the absolutely. ground. Absolutely. Someone should tell you at those moments now. You need to enjoy this because this might be a while before you get a chance to um, to go back again. But no, I haven't. I, I mean, I, you, you can get um, a lot of their live performances are, are available. Uh, to listen to and, and there's, a, there's a real richness in the sound when you get that so it would be a fantastic chance to do that but I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a phase of life that, that, that allows for a bit more of that Well as I'm sure you know on this podcast we have our own in-house band the Politics of Sound house band and I'm going to join them now we're going to play one of those tracks from the album it's the opening track and that's the stars of Track and Field Lovely
the politics of sound band with their own version of Bell and Sebastian's The Stars of Track and Field. So we come to your second album from the politics of sound record shop. Jonathan, what is it? So my second choice is Gomez and Bring It On. Uh, Again, an album hopefully some people are familiar with, a a Mercury uh, Music Prize winning album. But most of all for me, this is the soundtrack for university. So, uh, you know, as I said, I'm really proud to have grown up in, in the Northeast to be from Sunderland. But I, I went uh, just a few weeks after my 18th birthday, I arrived in Manchester in 1998, which is when uh, this record came out. And, you know, really arriving in Manchester as an 18 year old. I mean, I, I can't really explain just how shy I was. And uh, how, people tell me how strong my, my Sunderland accent was at the time. But, you know, this was just a just a fabulous moment in my life. I've obviously lived in, in different parts of Greater Manchester ever since then. Um, but this, when I was you know meeting my uh, flatmates uh, in halls of residence who, who are still you know some of my closest friends, this was the sort of soundtrack we would play. Uh, it was really big all across campus, and there's a very strong Manchester connection to it, um, certainly in some of the lyrics as well. But I can. I can hear a track like Tijuana Lady and it, it, it just takes you back, you know, to that moment. You remember exactly how you felt to be that 18 year old, to be, to be in a big city for the first time. I mean, I have to say, people laugh at this, you know, coming from, I come from the sort of the, the, the mining town outskirts of uh, Sunderland rather than the city centre. So arriving in Manchester was like arriving in Manhattan. You know, I remember seeing the cooperative insurance tower and thinking skyscrapers, you know, this is, this is the big time. And I still get that excitement. I love Manchester city centre. Just listening to you reminisce about that time, it was obviously a time of hope, expectation, ambition, but it also seems very much to have informed your musical choices. There's something slightly quirky about the Jonathan Reynolds choice of music. Do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah. I often, I have a, uh, one of my favourite playlists, I, I like to get particular cover versions of songs, you know, so a, a song you're familiar with being sung in an acoustic way or a different way, just for that kind of change of, of pace. Um, but this, I mean, you know, this is a great record uh, and worthy of the prizes it got. But, but most of all, it's that very personal memory. I mean, if, if you can remember most people I'm sure can have that phase of their life where they're, they're meeting new people, anything is possible. It, you know, you, you feel you've come out of a, a small world to the big city, to, 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 to the bigger environment, and you love it. And I loved everything about university. I know sometimes at the minute it seems it's not always fashionable to talk about young people going to university and talking about alternatives, and, and you know, the student debt element of that is a big part of it. But, you know, for that personal experience, for, for making you the person you are, I think higher education university, for me certainly, was, was just the massive difference. And you know, I have a, like everything these days, you have a WhatsApp group, uh, don't you, for everything. Me and my flatmates from university, we still have a WhatsApp group. You know, we, we ping each other messages, have a fantasy league, you know, tournament between ourselves. And, and it's, 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 it's literally like we sat there, we've come in from a club in Manchester, we're 18, 19. That, that relationship never changes. And that's an amazing thing to have. It really is. And so when you hear music that immediately takes you back to that time, 
fantastic. You talked about them winning the Mercury Prize. I mean, that was the most astonishing achievement for them. They were up against the Verve's Urban Hymns. I mean, that is seen by nearly everybody as an absolute classic. It was an extraordinary achievement for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you mentioned another fabulous album there uh, from the Verve. But I mean, I suppose as well, I don't think I would have... I'm just thinking how I first heard this album. It, it would have been from, you know, other people at university putting it on for the first time. So you're being introduced to it in that way. I mean, again, you know, I didn't, I never really have had a sense of, you know, being at the cutting edge of, of music tastes or anything like that. But meeting other people who introduce you to these new things, these new experiences, brilliant. Um, you know, and again, I wonder when, when people produce something like this, where do they go from there? It must be so hard to follow this up, you know. And it's, it's, well, a little bit like the Bell and Sebastian story, where they almost peaked with their second absolutely. album, although have still produced wonderful music since. Absolutely. And, yeah, that must be very difficult. And do you know the story about how they got their name? No, I don't, actually. Well, there's this wonderful story. They, they didn't have a name, and they were, they were doing this gig in Leeds, and they had a friend whose surname was Gomez, so they just wrote this great big sign outside which said Gomez in here <laughs> and everybody thought that that was the name of the band so they subsequently adopted it. Do you like the sort of mix of psychedelia and really unusual electronics and string quartet music and everything else they've got there but with a sort of blues undercurrent going on? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the mixture of sounds. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, again, how you feel when you're listening to it um really distinctive work i mean like a whip in piccadilly is a fairly sort of upbeat song about going to the student union in, in manchester and again you related very much to that but then going back to tijuana lady i mean that's like a really chilled bluesy sound it's you've been out you're, you're talking to your friends you you know it's just a brilliant sound and i again you know the, the fact that they had that in them that someone had faith in them let them record I mean I think the, the opening minute of Tijuana Lady is a sort of instrumental feature you know that you think yeah. where's this going you know it, it, it's the end of the, the middle and start some don't really quite naturally you don't think it's going to go in that direction but it's all part of the experience of immersing you in it um, uh, yes it's again this is a great record have you ever seen them live? Because I would have thought they'd be absolutely wonderful. No, again, I, I haven't. I think, I think, I mean, they were absolutely massive in 1998 in Manchester. And I, I do think they may have come to play the Academy, which is the, the big sort of student union venue. But I think we couldn't get into it. It was so, so popular. Or, or at least there, there was certainly some possibility of going to see them that I never quite managed to fulfil. So again, they're, they're on the list for hopefully something to fulfil at one stage. Well, you've mentioned the track Whip and Piccadilly. And I'm going to join the Politics of Sound band now and we're going to do our own version of that.
politics of sound band there with whipping piccadilly which is taken from gomez's album bring it on the choice of my guest jonathan reynolds so jonathan we come to your last album choice what is it yeah, well, if anyone thought I was deliberately picking sort of trendy uh, 1990s indie records, I wanted to mix that up. So this one is uh, Taylor Swift, 1989, um, cont- more contemporary, listening to music in the car. Obviously, the children get a pick, a big say in what we listen to. And this is a real popular one with the kids and particularly for my daughter, Bess. Um, and actually, you know, putting all attempts to sound, uh, you know, musically fashionable aside this is a great album as well i mean taylor swift is so talented but you know when i hear these songs i think of the the kids i think of my daughter um i think of those times together learning the lyrics to some of these and that's a that's such a happy memory as well did you have to learn the lyrics otherwise you were nowhere yes i mean to be honest i've always had this thing where i have a a really good memory um you know like I, my A levels and degree were in were in history, and I, I find it very easy to remember certain things. But I find if you if you remember things in a certain way, particularly with a with a tune, a musical element to them, so I find it very easy to remember lyrics. So it's not that I've ever tried, but I probably could for most songs I like, uh, especially when the tune is playing, go through word for word what the lyrics. I are. wish I'd known this. We could have had a lyrics <laughs> I quiz. I, I feel I should never so admit good. that in case I get challenged, sort of live no. on air to do. <laughs> You're going to be pulled onto every show. Yeah. <laughs> You could pick any Taylor Swift record, to be honest. They're also popular with the children. But th- this is a great one. I mean, Welcome to New York, when it starts. Uh, blank Space, people will be familiar with Style, Shake It Off. I mean, how she produces, hit after hit. It, it is, you know, again, the pressure on her to keep that standard up must be absolutely immense. And I think, if people are being honest, most people love a bit of Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor Swift, of course, is well known for reinventing herself, her music, her look. She started off pretty much in the sort of country genre. And then in the album before this, she was moving away from those sort of country credentials. But this album, 1989, she's a fully fledged pop artist. It's terribly confident, well produced. It's interesting that they call it 1989. It was about her birth year, but it was also about the style of music. It's very 80s synth pop, isn't it? It is. In fact, that probably that 80s influence is probably why people my age like it so much. But yeah, I mean, to be able to produce, you know, things from, from, from different genres, to reinvent yourself in that way, to keep yourself relevant and the standards so high, you know, you've got to acknowledge that the, the sheer talent that must lie behind that. And I, I've never seen Taylor Swift live that my daughter's been to to see her live at these massive concerts. And actually, there's a there's a, a one on Netflix she likes to watch as well. But I mean, the production value behind it and the experience and the relationship with people. I mean, she's doing this so well. Uh, you know, really, really outstanding artist in, in that sense. And I, I can acknowledge that. I, I like listening to the songs. And again. You know, when I listen to this, I, I picture myself, I'm in the car with the kids, we're doing one of our journeys up and down the country. I think, you know, as I get older, that's always a memory I'll have when I, when I hear the songs. And that, that's, that's what, I think, again, makes any music really special. She received great plaudits, not least from one of our former guests on the show, Callum MacDonald, for her album Folklore, which is seen as the sort of quintessential lockdown album. Is that album also a favourite for you? 
I, I can't say I know it as well, uh, to be honest. Um, but and, and we tend to listen when we're in the car listening to music. It basically works like this: each person gets a gets a turn to pick a song. So you can't really get through a whole album unless you, you know, go through sort of six rotations of <laughs> of everything. This is so democratic. <laughs> I mean, the Labour Party. This would be proud of all of this, surely. Yes, well, I suppose if you had a sort of trade union block vote in there, that'd be more like <laughs> the internal procedures of, of of doing it. Maybe, maybe that's what I should get, like the Unite vote on conference floor or something like that to uh, to to pick. But um, I don't know that as well. But yeah, I, I you know the standard is. Um, is very very high, and I think I'm right in saying you know Taylor Swift's be- become a little bit more involved in politics, some political statements around some of the um, U.S. Uh, president presidential election turns, and some of the more state politics as well, which is good to see. Uh, you know, politics is there for everyone. People should be expressing a view on what's going on in their their country, their society, and, and, and take a lead on that. So that's that's always good to see as well. Well, I think Donald Trump, very positive and very negative ways, has drawn many more people into American politics and indeed possibly around the world than would have normally been the case. Do you think that's true? I think it is. I mean, for me, obviously as a Labour MP, uh, not naturally sympathetic to, to Trumpism, but I, I think actually Trump represented something more sinister and significant, which is whether in this age of social media and, and people absorbing their news that way, were democratic politics, was it going to become an appeal to extremes, you know, not about building bridges, building relationships, trying to sort things out, but actually trying to fire up your own supporters, make them angry. You know, there's, a, there's always been a gig in politics for that, you know, from the, the 1930s onwards, that's always been a way, find difference, blame other people. And I think Biden's victory in the presidential election it's more important than just him replacing Trump. It was a rejection of that kind of politics, particularly in the popular vote. It doesn't mean we're past that yet. Yeah, we still live in an age where many countries around the world are locked into this sort of politics. But it sort of offered hope that things could be better. And I think that is so important because, you know, on right and left, there are people tempted to that. There, there are people on the, on the left in UK politics who want to go for sort of left-wing Trumpism, of, of demonising the other side. That just isn't me. That's not what I'm about. I don't think that's the right way forward. I, I want compromise. I want, you know, I'm always confident who I am as a Labour MP and I want the Labour government. But I, I think it's about converting people. You know, I... I don't think it's a bad thing that people tell me in my constituency they're lifelong Conservatives, but they'll vote for me because I'm building a relationship with them. And I think we've got to recognise that that's what it's about. And Trump being defeated was was an important part. Reaffirm my my faith that we're heading maybe in a better direction in future. Well, I'm really struck by your positivity. And I think that also feeds into your musical choices, particularly when it comes to albums. And this album... Taylor Swift it's almost celebratory isn't it yeah it is it's it's really upbeat isn't it it really uplifts you I mean you can't listen to a a shake it off and not uh, give yourself a bit of a dance in the privacy of your own uh, home or or with your hands as you're driving Um, what a great thing I mean just talking about what it means in terms of emotions and, and memories you know when when you've got something that can you know literally improve your mood can can make you feel happy when you didn't have that before that is absolutely fantastic um and i suppose it's the it's the happiness and sense of glee behind this album that really makes it what it is well hopefully we can keep that gleeful mood going i'm going to join up again with the politics of sound band and we're going to play the opening track from the album and that's welcome to new york
Taylor Swift's Welcome to New York, played by the Politics of Sound band. Now, Jonathan, as well as all of your other interests, I understand you're also a bit of a movie buff. Is that so? Oh, I love films. I really do. I think it's, again, if you've got a lot of children, you can't go out much. You can spend a bit of time uh, watching things from home. But particular favourites, I mean... I think Citizen Kane is 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 massive, and obviously a story there about media and politics um, that, that it always seems appropriate. I love films like Goodfellas, you know, and Donny Brasco, and things like that 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 come from a that reveal sort of different subcultures and and and, and times in history and, and different. You're talking about a lot of very multi-layered films here. Yeah, absolutely. That, that have a lot going on, and I actually think one of the I mean, one of the things that you get now with the streaming services is you're getting kind of, you know, box sets which are like really long films, you know, split up into into epi- hour long episodes. But the whole the whole experience is more is more like cinema than it is for for television. I mean, Game of Thrones is a great example of that. A story just developing on and on. I think there there is there is so much good stuff being produced at the minute now. We're almost. People are spoilt for choice. I mean, I, I've, I finally got my my parents to, to try Netflix out for The Crown, you know, and they absolutely love it. And you know, all of that's there for people to, to get into. I, I mean, I, my, one of my real passions is history as well, so I, I love anything with a kind of historical angle to it. I, I love the older older series of The Crown when you're. You know, Which, of on. course, is causing some consternation in some areas at the moment where people are saying, this is fiction. It's entertainment, ultimately, isn't it? It is entertainment, but also, I mean, you know, if the, if the, if the Cabinet are worried about the Crown at the height of a pandemic when, you know, there's so much, so much more to be worried about, I, I think they've got their priorities slightly wrong, uh, to be honest. I mean... Look, the major events are, are of record, but I think people, you know, they've got the, the ability to, to Google Wikipedia, haven't they? <laughs> if they're worried about the historical accuracy of television, it's not like the information is hard to get hold of. Um, you know, so I mean, all, all of that is, it, it's really good. And again, I guess there's escapism there. I mean, you, one of the things, if you're a politician, you know, you put the news on or pick up a newspaper and it's, it's work. I mean, it, it has to be that. You know, you, you go to Tesco and people will, will quite rightly stop you and tell you about things in their life. And you need that. That's how you keep connected to what's important to people. But you, you need a little bit of escapism as well. So movies, I think, are a, are a great chance to do that. And I know you're also a keen gardener. What first challenges await you in your own garden after the winter? Oh, I love, I love growing fruit and vegetables that's not it's not a very rock and roll thing to say but i did i did once win it's one of the, very rock the and prizes. roll i mean in, in, i think paul mccartney left the beatles to do exactly that and produce children i think was the other thing he said I remember when I um, I won first prize in our local agricultural show for first time in show, and I wanted to stress to listeners it was anonymously marked. Okay, so this was not special. This is a first the for the politics of sound listeners. Took to the local MPs. This was a few years ago. It made it made the front page. I think of the, of the Thameside Advertiser. People were really quite taken with it. One of the problems you have, people understand this. It's not the climate in Greater Manchester, which is actually very good for, for growing certain things. It's basically. You know, as you get busier and you're always away from home and you're getting back Thursday night, it gets dark quite early in Greater Manchester. You don't have the time to, to devote to these things. So I've moved away from vegetables to fruit. So I'm growing got a new apple tree, which is looking very good. I have some Braben apples. I'm going to grow some uh, some gooseberries for the first time, hopefully in, in the spring. Uh, some red currants, some white currants. I often, 
to be honest, I go to the garden centre and I see what's in the kind of the sell-off clearance bin and <laughs> just find something unusual and try and grow. As well as that, one thing that is absolutely great to grow in Staley Bridge are raspberries because the water makes them so juicy and, and succulent. So I've, I've quite a nice little raspberry uh, collection that, uh, that fruits in different times of the year to get that spread across it. Well, on that wonderful horticultural note... Jonathan, thanks so much for being my guest on the politics of sound for the music and all of the insights you've given us. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. The politics of sound. You've been listening to The Politics of Sound for February. My guest this month was Jonathan Reynolds, and I'd like to thank him and all at Team Reynolds for their assistance, and in particular, Jack Glynn. Joining me in the band this month was the guitarist Jeff Sprackling and the trumpeter Aaron Wood. Don't forget that you can keep up with all the latest Politics of Sound news by following us on Twitter, that's at politics underscore sound, and we are also a featured podcast on the Global Player, so do check us out there. We'll be back on the 1st of March, when my guest will be the actor, musician and face of the newly formed Reclaim Party, that's Lawrence Fox. Have a great month, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.